So our topic for today will be biblical, biblical fellowship. And um, as you can tell from the schedule, the, the headline topic, spiritual growth, unity, and facing challenges in fellowship. The main topic today and next week will be this, this whole notion of unity. And the spiritual growth side and the challenges side will just kind of build into this concept of unity. Now, all of you may know that there are many, many passages in the Word of God that have a bearing on the topic of unity. And um, unity is defined as when we are all one, when we are one of mind, one of spirit, one of purpose, one of mission and goal, agreement, concord, unanimity, integral. Uniformity, on the other hand, is when we believe the same thing, when we practice the same thing. It's like when we're running for a goal in a consistent or similar way. So in uniformity, you can have a lot of different differences in practice. But before we go any further, I just wanted to give a definition of the term unity and then contrast it with uniformity. Any questions? Do we all understand the definition for unity and uniformity? Sure, uniformity. No, it's okay. It's when we all believe the same thing and practice the same thing. We are uniform in our beliefs and behaviors. Consistency, sameness, likeness, likeness and similarity. Let me ask you this question, kind of on the topic of uniformity. Who is all a big fan of kind of southern gospel music? Southern gospel music. And I see hands, and I'm not like a big fan of it. But would you like to walk in here and hear southern gospel type music? I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with it. I'm not you know, bagging on Southern Gospel music in any way. But, I mean, some people prefer that type of worship music. And our church isn't uniformly, is not uniformly pursuing Southern Gospel music, right? It doesn't mean that people can't be uniform in their pursuit of that type of worship music. Does that make sense? Or how about this? How about Gospel Proclamation? You've seen people just go out on street corners and start preaching the gospel. Or you've maybe had it with yourself in your own life where your preference to preach or proclaim the gospel is more one-on-one, -on -one, more in a discussion when you've got somebody's full undivided attention rather than two passing souls on a, on a street corner. Does that make sense? So there's, there's not uniformity in gospel proclamation, but there's unity, agreement, concord, unanimity, and kind of an integral unity as it relates to what exactly the gospel is. Make sense? Questions, thoughts, comments? All good? Cool. But before we go any further, when you talk about this topic of unity, I, I know that a few weeks ago I had brought up this book, which is a book written by James Montgomery Boyce. It's a commentary book on the, on the um, epistles of the Apostle John. And I remember commenting on how um, he had always thought of assurance in more abstract terms. Um, and it, he didn't really understand the experiential side of assurance in the operation of his faith up until he did a, a very detailed study of John's um, epistles, of John's books. But he writes something here that struck me as... Um, making our practice and experience in faith very much of a challenge. And perhaps some of you have heard this before, and maybe you can see the challenge in our unity, in our both uniformity and unity, when I read this to you. Uh, Dr. Boyce writes, Moreover, as I continued my studies, I saw that it is impossible to overestimate the importance of these three elements of Christian life. And what he's referring to there is truth, righteousness, and love. And just like in Hebrews chapter 10, when we were in Hebrews chapter 10 a few weeks ago, chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, talking about assurance, talking about our accessibility to God. Well, what, what became apparent to Dr. Boyce is that on the practical level, understanding truth, righteousness, and love, putting hands and feet on that, all of a sudden opened up his understanding of the experience of faith. But let me continue on in reading this to you. Um, we need them all, 
Indeed, it is only when all three are present, truth, righteousness, and love, that any of us can claim that we have entered into a well-rounded, vital, and growing Christian experience. And then maybe you've heard this, love without righteousness is immorality. Though today in some religious circles, it is called the new morality. So again, love without righteousness is immorality. But in some religious circles, it's called the new morality. Righteousness without doctrine is legalism. And we can see a lot of that going on in the church today as well. Doctrine without love is a bitter orthodoxy, Dr. Boyce writes. It is the kind of truth that is rigorously perfect in a sense, but which does not win anyone. All three of these elements must be present in the life of any true and growing Christian. I want you to hear this again, because all three of these really put some tension or friction on how we do fellowship. Think about it. Love without righteousness is immorality. So when we love one another in unity, in uniformity, do we have righteousness? Is that subjective or objective? How do we navigate that? Um, righteousness without doctrine is legalism. There's a lot of legalism going on in the world today. Righteousness without doctrine is legalism. And then finally, doctrine without love is a bitter orthodoxy. So I, I thought it was helpful to read that. Any thoughts or comments about those three kind of um, truths, if you will, that Dr. Boyce is expounding on here as it relates to whether they help our unity or whether they hurt our unity, our oneness? Yes. Absolutely, it's immorality. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll read them all again. Yeah. You know what? Let me let me double check that. Hold on. Love without righteousness is immorality. Love without righteousness is immorality. Did you ca did you catch that one? The, then the second one is righteousness without doctrine is legalism. Yeah, doctrine is teachings or truth, didactica, expressions of, yeah, just expounding um, the truth. Question? I'll get to the third one. Doctrine, yes. One of our doctrines is communicating the truth of the gospel. So doctrine is like the rebar of our faith. Do you remember two weeks ago when we talked about the Lord Jesus Christ being made manifest? The Apostle John could touch him, hear him, see him. Well, if somebody says, I believe in Jesus Christ, but then does not explain who Jesus Christ is, do you see the difference? You could say, I believe in Jesus Christ, and then you ask them, well, who exactly was Jesus Christ? He was a good man. That's where the doctrinal error comes in. Does that make sense? So the moment you say something about Jesus Christ, you've made a doctrinal statement. What are you grounding that in? Who was Jesus Christ? The third one, did I repeat all three? I don't think I had. Okay, I gave you two, right? Love without righteousness is immorality. Righteousness without doctrine is legalism. And the final one is doctrine without love is a bitter orthodoxy, the kind of truth that is rigorously perfect in a sense but which does not win anyone. Question. I, going back to what you were saying, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think people confuse doctrine with dogma. Yes, however, dogma and doctrine both are like bad words today in our culture. If you're dogmatic, then you're outside of the norm of discourse. Or you're not allowed at the table because you're too doctrinaire, too dogmatic. So there's definitely a sense where doctrine and dogma overlap and both can be held fast to righteousness, righteously because we know that our faith is founded on a book, founded on God's revelation, his self-revelation. And the moment that you start to unhook yourself from God's self-revelation, then your feet are floating in midair. So would it be religious dogma compared to righteous dogma? Religious dogma, what do you mean by religious dogma? Different um, dogmas of different 
different religious systems? Yes. Yeah, no, no, very, very good. So here, here we're kind of getting into a discussion of different interpretations of God's revelation. Man's interpretation. Yeah, and, and, and the problem becomes in, in modern Christianity writ large is that we don't have a proper kind of scientific regulated means of taking the word of truth and then extracting from it what it really means based upon the authorial intent of the scripture itself. So unless you can mine the context, mine the understanding, like we were talking about John in the first epistle that he wrote, we know a little bit about his life. We know what his circumstances were. We also know under the inspiration of God what he was trying to communicate about Jesus Christ. But where a lot of religious circles take liberty is they begin to read into the truth what they want communicated. Instead of, instead of putting themselves under the word of God, understanding God's self-revelation about himself, and then bringing that to bear in a place like this. Does that make sense? Good question, so excellent. And this all hurts our unity question. No problem. Can you put a little meat on, on your bones there and just say, like, give me some concrete or common examples of each? Of each of those three, those three yeah. things that I just read yeah. to you? Oh, absolutely. So, for example, love without righteousness is immorality. I mean, pastor's been saying, quoting John McCartney, and all you need is love, 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 and oh, our whole culture, our whole society could just use more compassion, love, and understanding of one another. Well, if any of you have had experience with friends or family members who decide to move in with one another outside of marriage in order to express their beautiful, wonderful love, and all they need is love, that is called love without righteousness, which is immorality. Does that help with that example? Good. And then, boy, now, you, now you've got me having to go back. Um, yeah, that's okay. Righteousness without doctrine, right? Let me make sure. Yeah, righteousness without doctrine is legalism. Okay, that's excellent. Yeah. So if I'm going to tell you that you can only go to church and listen to gospel, southern gospel music in order to really have community with God in heaven, then that's pretending that there's some type of righteousness that I have in the area of worship music that I'm presenting to you as a truth and you have to adhere to it, this, this level of righteousness. I'm not sure that that's the best example. It, I don't know of anybody that... Yeah. Yeah. Or, or how, how about this, righteousness without doctrine. If, if you do not take the Lord's Supper every Sunday or participate in a fellowship every Sunday, that you have committed a mortal sin. Now, what I just said there is loaded with all kinds of righteousness that is not founded in doctrinal truth, that is not communicated clearly in the word of God. Does that make sense to you? God, can you give me another one? Another one? <laughs> no, 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 you're okay. Um, boy, what would be another? I Go ahead, Courtney. The Pharisees in the New Testament, yeah. uh, they had all these external rules to, you know, be, to be perceived as righteous. But, you know, we see our word call them out as whitewashed tombs because their hearts had not been changed. So they did all these external things to appear righteous, but the reality is, is just legalism because their heart wasn't changed um, internally. I see that, but I'm wondering, like, okay, this is like in the Jews in the Old Testament type thing, but like right now in our present, like amongst ourselves, our neighbors, I mean, our relatives, our family. Mm-hmm. Don't work on Sunday. Don't work on Sunday. Right, so there's a lot of people that believe that. Yeah, great, absolutely. So okay. I got one. Uh, the lady I worked with, my first started working with home, the lady I worked with, whatever, we'd have these discussions. Dressing her Sunday best, having like those nice hats the women wore years ago all the time, her Sunday best. But Monday through Friday, when I see her at work, 
she'd wear these in very skin tight jeans and shirts, kind of like revealing stuff or whatever. And I'm surprised the punk allowed it. But the thing about it is she'd wear that kind of stuff and, I, and she would she would say that it's not right for people to not go to church and dress in their Sunday best. And I said, and I'd have to point out to her that God can tell you that he looks at the inner man. He looks, he's the one that knows the heart of man. So you can dress as, as extravagantly as possible, but your heart is not right with God. And that's the thing. It's like she would say, hey, if you're not dressing your Sunday best, you're being like sinful. So that's like, that's today. But it's kind of like what she just mentioned about the Pharisees. That's a, that's a pharisaical belief to do as I say. It's just that, that's kind of like what you have. Do those examples help you? Yeah, but I, anybody else have one? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, hands are going up all over the room. I love it. Go ahead. The, di the difference between those is um, the doctrine in Scripture is, doesn't change. These things change with the culture, with the continent, with the age. They're just like you're talking about, you're talking about mortal sin, not going to Mass on Sunday, or... or um, eating meat, you know, all those things change. And so there's not that, um, you know, I used to feel like I feel sorry for the poor people who died before it was um, it was a mortal sin to, to eat meat on Friday. Well, they changed that. So those people now can eat meat on Friday, and so they're in heaven. Not kidding, but you know what I mean. No, I know, yeah. But that's the yeah. whole thought. It doesn't, there's not a consistency. Right, right. So, so the point is, does, does all this help you, I hope? I'm trying. Good. Well, well just hang in there. We're, we're, we're going to move things along now, okay? But, but here's the point. All, all three of those statements that I made, can you see this? I think everybody would agree. They tend to undermine our sense of unity. In other words, our sense of coming together, holding fast to a particular understanding of how to interpret truth, and then taking that truth in, and then not just experiencing, experiencing it, but also living it outwardly, okay, on, on the horizontal level where we all share life together. And so all of these types of things can really affect our sense of unity one with another. Um, I've got another question up here. Do you call one another brothers and sisters? If so, why? And I don't mean your real brothers and sisters, I mean Hey, brother Nick, how you doing today? Hope everything went well and got a thumbs up. And you know, why do we do that? I use terms brothers and sisters referring to people who I know are of the faith semi-regularly. Why do we do that? I don't do that, but I think of the men and women in this church as being my brothers and my sisters. I think it starts in the Bible. Um, uh, I'm not sure exactly where I can find it now, but I know it's in the New Testament regularly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, as a matter of fact, we're referred to in the scriptures as the family of God. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, please. Sorry. Yeah, no, it, it, is, it is very true. And again, this is another source of tension. All three of those statements that I read off are certainly sources of tension, even in our own understanding of them. And then you get into these varying degrees of sanctity. And we're all on this trajectory, running towards heaven, moving out in our lives, deepening our understanding of how to appropriate the word of God, both in terms of how I think and in what I do. And we're all at different levels. And this, too, can create disunity between people in one family, in one church family. Has it ever created dysfunction or disunity in your own, like, physical family? I mean, your, your blood family? 
you know, there are different aspects of this that can lead to tension within your own family. And we can see the same type of thing coming into the church. So when we talk about fellowship, this concept of unity is very, very important. How we do unity together is very foundational so that this whole body of Christ might be moving in a unified direction, agreement, concord, unanimity, and in an integral way, but doing it in a, in a way that is encouraging people who are may, maybe further behind in the sanctity. Maybe they don't understand what do you mean by doctrine is, is cold, hard, you know, bitter uh, legalism without love. What do you mean by that? Or bitter orthodoxy without love. Well, one of the most loving things that you can do is confront somebody with their sin. And if you're using the words of truth, of doctrine, of teaching to confront somebody with their sin, you're doing that with a very, very much extended hand of love to that person. As a matter of fact, the most unloving thing you can do is to not confront somebody with their iniquity, their sinful behavior. That's unloving. But yet you do it with a heart of love. Does that make sense? Again, there's a tension, there's a balance there that we have to, as believers, be striving to under the greater umbrella of this unity that I speak of. Okay? So we'll push on to the next slide. Uh, biblical fellowship requires unity. This is what you've got in front of you. These are the notes. And um, that was a long introduction, by the way. <laughs> but uh, we're going to talk a little bit more in the area of kind of introducing this topic just because there's a picture of unity that we really need to understand in the scripture, in the Bible. And that's what we're going to kind of anchor our comprehension of this unity that we've been talking about by looking at it in God himself. Jeremiah touched on this in the first session, but we're going to go a little bit deeper. But I, I did want to ask this question before we go any further. Would you say that we live in a fractured, divisive world and culture today? And if you would say that, can you give me examples and why? And what I'm looking for here is not just the standard, you know, what we're seeing on the streets or hearing in the news or maybe experienced in our workplace or families. But what I'm looking for is what's different about the nature of our division today than maybe 10 years ago, maybe 50 years ago, maybe 2,000 years ago. Do you understand my point? Do you remember when we read that passage from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and how we're on this trajectory where selfishness, unloving, hateful of parents, all these different indica indicators and markers of the last times were ever and more so becoming prevailing or true? And that's kind of why I'm asking this question. what other people's feelings are, or whatever it is. So it creates a wedge between me and them. I create a wedge between me and them because I want what I want at the demise of what they want, at the expense of what they want. And so I can push and push and push to get what I want because I'm loving myself and not loving them. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, so it's this inordinate focus on self is I think what you're communicating has become even more profound. I, I always think of the original Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory and the rich girl who wanted her golden goose. I want my golden goose and I want it now. I mean, she is like the epitome of somebody who you would not want as a close personal friend. I want my golden goose and I want it now. No, we're so self, we're so self, and, and why is that so? Why, why are we so self-obsessed? Go ahead, Luke. Part of this is because of just our sinful nature, right? Right. I think in the current culture, this is my opinion, right, that a lot of it traces back to moral relativism, right? So you kind of lost your moral compass when where we said, okay, no, what you believe to be true is true. What I believe to be is true is true, even though we're far apart, right? Because there's no center of, of, of where we find our truth, right? And so once you do that, then 
you have no unity, right? Because there, there's nothing to agree with unless you agree with my opinion, right? Yeah, no, Th that's a great point, Luther. As a matter of fact, that's kind of where I'm going with this. It, it, we live in a time when all truth claims are accepted as, as absolute, as we have to be willing to look at another person's claim of how he sees expressions of righteousness, of evil, of sinfulness, and we have to consider that, well, that might be good for them. Have you ever witnessed to somebody and have them, had them say something like, well, I'm glad you have your God of the Bible, Mike, good for you. I'll keep my God, you keep your God. You're good where you are, stay in your lane, I'm good in my lane. But yet, we're also seen as very unloving when we try to make it clear that there is a difference in an internal subjective understanding of truth versus an external objective understanding of truth, well, then you're intolerant and unloving and you're divisive. So there's tension there in terms of our, the fabric of our unity. And this can be within and without the church or outside of the church. Question. Yeah, basically it's your worldview. I love it, but yeah. When, when you talk about the culture, I think the most divisive thing was um, COVID. Whether you take a shot, whether you not to take a shot, whether you wear a mask, not to wear a mask, it's divided the world and the church. Yeah. No, it's so true, and, th and that was a new thing, and, and it was something that was, I mean, we've had other pandemics throughout the history of humanity, but never something that was so kind of added a political and almost a, um, how do you say it, uh, I mean, I hate to say it, almost a religious overtone to it in terms of self-righteousness and expression, and this became very, very disunifying. Yeah, excellent point. Anything else? Very good point. Yeah, it is interesting when you consider the founding of our nation, including the fact that almost all of the nation's founders were actually deists. So their doctrine was definitely askew from what we would understand as words of truth because they basically forfeited, forfeited the spiritual aspect of our creation. But having said that, at least you had the common convictions that we all had freedoms and aspirations that were a gift of God, and that we had the right to pursue those foundationally, fundamentally, as a collective and individually. So excellent point. Was there another hand? Go ahead. Uh, a vague recollection, but yeah. <laughs> Based on Katrina, do you remember those of us that were alive in 1960, and I was, I was here already, um, <laughs> that the big question was when John Kennedy was um, put in as president, it was a big divisive thing in the nation, whether you were Protestant or Catholic, because if John Kennedy got in, he was going to have allegiance to the Pope, and it divided the nation. Now, you, you would welcome somebody that just believed in God, you know. Yeah. So again, that's a good point. Again, that kind of keeps with why our society. How about the church? Are you seeing these fractures creeping into? I mean, not necessarily just our local church, but the Christian church at large. And if so, do you have examples of what that may look like in the church? What divides the body? I mean, just yesterday, Jeremiah and I were talking about um, T4G, Together for the Gospel, Noble Clause, right? Uh, all these different uh, kind of disparate, mainstream, Protestant, uh, Christian groups coming together in Louisville. Um, thousands of people would attend this. A very wonderful event. Great teaching. And now it's completely dissipated. It's gone. T4G is no more. Because these different 
these different groups within modern Protestant Christianity, these different leaders even, could no longer be unified to come together for the gospel. What does this say about our church in a dying, sin-filled world? To what extent do you take what I just said very seriously as it relates to being an advocate for our Lord and his church and making his church be a place of respite, a place of teaching, but also a community of love where you hold on to these truths with conviction, but you hold them loosely enough to communicate them with a caring, kind-hearted manner rather than a billy club. How do we do that as a church? This is really, really important. As a matter of fact, Pastor Rich had mentioned last weekend when he commented on John 13, 34 and John 13, 35, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you have loved one for another. By this all men shall know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. This new commandment was also wrapped up in a new kingdom, was wrapped up into a new revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, was wrapped up in a new covenant. And then Pastor Rich made a beeline to Ezekiel chapter 36 and talked about our hard rock our rocky heart being taken out and replaced with a soft heart, a new covenantal teaching that occurred way, way back, 500 years before the Lord walked on this earth. Um, so the point is that we have a new covenant, a new kingdom, a new revelation of Messiah, same Messiah, new revelation. We've got all this wonderful New Testament literature that we can learn from and teach to one another. And yet, what do we do? We make a disunified mess of it, don't we? Because of all these things we're talking about. Okay? Um, how's that for a big joy killer? <laughs> it's a challenge. It is a challenge. And to the extent that we live together in unity, we extol the virtues of his church, and we, you know what? We look a lot different than the culture, don't we? We look like a, an attractive place where it's like, you know what? When I came into that church on Sunday morning, I saw people who actually asked me how I was doing, and they really cared. They stopped and listened to me so that I could share life with them. And then I took a phone call from somebody on Wednesday because they were also interested in why I came to their church and what if any questions that I may have that they could, that, that they might answer for me. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? I mean, this is all part of the body life of this community of believers, extolling how virtuous it is to be here, just to be here and be here and, and share life together in these brief moments of time that we have. Um, so are we a fractured and divided uh, church? And again, I'm speaking writ large, but you could also argue at the local level to some degree. What are typical goals of the world's efforts to unify? <clears throat> what are typical goals of the world's efforts to unify? Oh, that's a mouthful. Isn't the world all about unity and sharing love and coming together and having common accord? Do they have goals in such a unity? What are those goals? What are they typically? Any thoughts? Well, I mean, one of my favorite, well, actually, this favorite <laughs> things I really hate to say is the coexist bumper sticker, right? <laughs> I, I so love that. Thank you, Luther, for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I marvel at that. And, and you think, okay, yeah, we're all on this, you know, terrestrial ball for this brief duration of time. And we have to coexist, otherwise we're at each other's throats. But on what grounds? Yeah. Right. What is the essence and nature of our coexistence? I mean, if you have no rules, if you have no law, you might as well go be a headhunter on some southeastern, you know, Pacific, Asian Pacific island 
and coexist there. I mean, is that not coexistence? You know, one of the things that the monks did, um, well, the monks, Athanasius, I mean, you go back to the fourth century in the church and coexistence to this aesthetic group that really struck a, a, a big mainstream uh, kind of um, alike in, in the church at that time was to drop out, go into the desert. In Egypt, this was very common. Uh, people would just retreat, go into the desert. And, and even monks, I mean, these people who would dress up in their Snuggies and go off into a, you know, some type of uh, uh, rural you know, castle on a mountaintop, yeah, walking around in their Snuggies, all of one color, though. They didn't have multicolored yeah, Snuggies. They, <laughs> 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 they were unicolored, yes, at the time. But, but, but even those people were trying to find a coexistence model to make much of God by taking themselves away from sin, but sin had an ugly way of following them out into the desert and into the monastery. But isn't that unity? Monastery? Um, even herm her a hermit, a hermit has its Greek derivation in the word for one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so this is what are the typical goals of the world's effort to unify? They tried to do one world money as well. One world money, one world economy, one world order. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yes, and we have some biblical warrant for understanding what this looks like. Praise God for that, because then we can speak to it, just like we can speak to the times using, for, using 2 Timothy 3 and other passages too. Um, what else? What else are typical goals of the world's effort to unify? What we're trying to do here is make sure that we understand unity biblically and then understand it from a worldly standpoint, although we're starting on the world side right now. Climate change, yes, aren't we all about unifying in this understanding of how we are destroying our environment. Thank you. Yeah, that, that's certainly a call to unify uh, one another. Yeah, very good. Another one? Centralized power. Centralized power, yes. Again, kind of like along the lines of what Luther was just saying. Yeah, we see this desire within humanity to sin in the area of accumulating more power and more control over others. Boy, hasn't that been a problem for a long, long time? <laughs> Uh, go ahead. So that would actually be a good Sunday school series. Mm -hmm. Like how Christians address the issues in the, in the world culture, like climate change and all these other things that have been mentioned. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So how, we, how we view it and how do we address it. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. Thank you for sharing that. And in the context of unity, that's what we're doing here today to some extent. We're trying to see the malevolency, the, the sinfulness, the wrongness, the agency of the evil way of the world and its thinking behind a lot of what we're talking about. And that's really the key. Do you understand the system, the ideology, and the philosophy of man that undergirds these, uni these unifying initiatives in the world today? And do you see them for what they are? And are you able to make in your mind a definitive um, separation between that and this? And go to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's take a quick look in Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to bring you unity in the context of the church. Ephesians chapter 4. Now remember, this is the portion of Paul's great epistle to the church in Ephesus where you have a change. The therefore is that, is that important uh, tell as it relates to the uh, credenda is one way I've heard it expressed. The credenda versus the agenda. That's a little bit of a different way to say it. The credenda versus the creeds, the establishing of all the different uh, kind of uh, uh, truth communications, doctrinal teachings of the first three chapters. And now we're going into the indicatives. What are the agenda? How are we supposed to communicate that in our lives? So Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 this word, therefore, as a separation, a transitionary word. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. I, I want to stop there on verse 3 because you really have the high point statement in this little uh, introductory section of Ephesians 4. This notion of being very um, dedicated, being very much to the point of preserving the oneness of the spirit in the bond of peace. A very important uh, statement. And then Paul goes into this, this beautiful expose. There is one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, over, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. <clears throat> so you have this very important statement as it relates to God wanting unity in the body life of our faith, of our church. Um, a very important statement there in Ephesians 4. And then I've got, as we kind of push on, I, I had mentioned before how this unity is to be founded. And I do want to talk about that right now. How is this unity that Paul speaks of in this practical side of Ephesians 4, what does this actually look like? Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 if you would. I want to talk just for a moment about how God purposed to catch us up in a great exchange that occurred between Jesus and God in heaven. Romans chapter 8 verse 9. Romans chapter 8 verse 9. Um, we'll read through verse 11. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit which dwells in you. You can see in that passage what, what, I'd, what I'd call, um, going back to the other slide that I had up, uh, a uniformity in the Godhead. Who's involved in the saving of each and every one of us? The Son, the Father, the Spirit. So there's this sense of mission that all three people of the God have had, that they all have, they're all on point but yet they're doing different things. The Spirit is indwelling. God is giving. Jesus is communicating. So all these different aspects of what I'd call uniformity and mission are apparent in the Godhead himself, but yet they all have their own little ways of expressing it in our lives and to us. Any questions about that? Thoughts, comments? What we're trying to paint a picture of is how our unity is rooted in God himself. And you can see the unity and the uniformity in what's going on. Go to John chapter 4, the next passage there. <clears throat> Verse 15. Whoever confesses, John chapter 4, verse 15 through 17. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love, <clears throat> the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse 17, by this love is perfected with us so that we have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Oh, did I say John? Yeah. First John. Sorry, yeah. I, I forgot the one in front of First John. What did you say, Jeremiah? Yeah, Mike's revised version. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> Sorry, First John chapter 4. Yeah, as I was reading that, I'm thinking to myself, hmm. Um, but uh, thank you. John, First John 4.15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. 
by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Again, you can see similarity of mission. Um, I, what I want to do is push on to um, just a couple more introductory comments. Let me see here. Yeah, unity in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This, um, there's actually a John 17 passage that I really want to get to. Our fellowship is with our God, our triune God. Go to 2 Peter 1.4 um, real quick and take a look at that passage as well. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. where Peter writes, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So again, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become sharers, partakers, that we take on this divine nature and we escape or taken out of the corruption that is in the world. Um, let's move on here to yeah, every spiritual benefit that is received comes only in our union with Christ. Um, kind of going towards another main point here. Yeah, new commandment, new believers. That's the point I made earlier. I know I've got a John 17 passage in here. Um, go to John 17. I know what it is. <laughs> John 17, verse 20, which really lands the jet on this comment that I'm trying to drive the point of. What is the basis of our unity? What is the basis of our uniformity? It's in God himself. So in John chapter 17, verse 20, we see in our Lord's uh, final words, um, very important words, where he's praying to God, and he says in verse 20 of John 17, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Can I just say, don't miss the importance, the importance of these final words of our Lord. What is he praying for? What's on his heart? Our unity. So the next time you have divisive thoughts about something somebody said, or maybe you're provoked, the Lord was praying with unbelievable passion um, for our unity. And he wanted it to be the same as what Jesus has with the Father in heaven. And then in verse 22 of John 17, he further prays, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Why? That they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, and you and me that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, and even as you have loved me. Do you understand between the passages in John 8, between the passage in John, 1 John 4, um, all these different levels of involvement that each and every one of us get to participate in, when we think about what's going on between God and Jesus, his son, and how we're all unified together. It, it should really stagger your mind to think that we are caught up in this great exchange. And the Lord is praying for our unity in the outworking of that. It's a very, very foundational, important thought. Okay? Now, let's push on here. Agreement in core doctrines. Is this even possible? Believers should share a common understanding and acceptance of essential Christian doctrines and beliefs. Why might that be important? Let me just throw that question out there. Why should we have common accord in our core doctrines? Is it even possible? Is it desirable? Can it be done? I mean, the Bible is exhorting us to do it, so we'll say yes. However, what does this look like? 
Yes. And so understanding the nature of our existence today is, especially in the spiritual realm, and then when all these different pressures come in to our church or in front of us in a physical way, we've got to see the spiritual element behind it in order to rightly stand firm and do battle against the tares and the wolves in sheep's clothing and the, and the aberrant doctrines and thoughts. Very important that we are rooted in common core doctrines. And is it even possible? Absolutely is. Any other thoughts? Yeah, I think that's an important reason why the elders interview prospective members of the church to make sure that they truly understand the essence of what it is to be saved and to love Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Excellent. Very good point. It's one of the reasons why at this church, is it foolproof? <laughs> Does it mean that there couldn't be somebody who could say the right things in this interview process and all our elders are mere men and that somehow a wolf could be bought into the presence of, of this very flock? Absolutely. So all the more it's imperative that we have this unanimity as it relates to core doctrines. Any other thoughts? Please, Tim. Does it create disunity for somebody to say, repeat that one more time just to make sure I've got it? Um, in, in other words, don't major in the minors. Yeah. Okay, but not majoring in the minors leads to splits. We've seen over 50 years. So yes, so right. Yeah, I, I think I understand your question. And, and here's the important reason for this point being in our, in our notes. We want to make sure that we understand what are the places that we absolutely cannot equivocate on, that we cannot give ground on, and there's a difference between certain other areas, more on the periphery of the faith, that we can understand and still have unanimity in our worship of the God of the Bible. So yes, there are core doctrines, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in just a moment. I'll add a little bit more um, meat to the bones uh, to communicate exactly what those are. But thanks for that, Tim. Yeah. Thoughts, comments? I think sometimes we can, the core doctrine, the like essential truths of Christianity are important because we tend to confuse like differing preferences as disunity. Like I wouldn't consider us disunified for Presbyterians because we have different practices than we do, but because we still have the same core doctrines. So I think that's where that uh, understanding other people and giving love to people comes in, because I don't think that's disunity, mm -hmm. but it's different practices which aren't okay. Like the ordinance of baptism. Yeah. I mean, to name one. Pado-baptism versus, you know, confessional baptism. The difference in ordinances that we have. But could we not commune? with somebody who would hold to a different view of that particular ordinance. And then in the Roman Catholic world, there's a whole different perspective on baptism. And, and it is more of a sacerdotal type of requirement for one to be in right standing with God. Um, so you can see again these areas of tension with such foundational truths. Thanks for that, Nick. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And I know, Jeremiah, you've got an equip class coming up, right? Is it next quarter? Yeah. Block. Yeah. So we'll kind of differentiate those primary doctrines versus secondary tertiary doctrines and, <coughs> you know, kind of help us understand how to understand unity in the midst of those things. Because, yeah, for, you know, a different denomination, you can still be unified to Nick's point, uh, but that doesn't mean that, you know, a Presbyterian elder would be an elder at New Community Church. You know, that might be an example of how that would play out. 95% uh, of what we believe 
line, but you know, a couple of those you know core doctrines, depending on the individual, of course, just because it's a denomination doesn't mean uh, that that's a hundred percent alignment. But um, generally speaking, you know, if if the person is completely aligned with their denomination, there may be a distinctive there that would be challenging to hold while going to a different denomination and being in leadership. Uh, but it doesn't mean that you have disunity. It just means that we are unified to understand we have a difference of a theological opinion, and in that we can still be unified and uh, because the core central doctrine is unified. Um, and so, yeah, the secondary and tertiary certainly issues can be, you know, open-handed and understand, hey, we can love each other, be unified, but still have a difference of opinion on a theological matter. And uh, the, the better we're able to do that, the better unity we'll actually have. Yeah, excellent, thanks. Another one would be a cessationist versus a non-cessationist. Sure. Yeah, those who believe that certain grace gifts of the Holy Spirit are still in operation today, those of speaking in tongues and those of foreseeing events. Uh, being, meaning a prophet who can foresee events, not just speaking truth and communicating truth. Um, so again, you can have a saved charismatic who embraces the gospel, who knows his sins have been forgiven him for God's sake, 1 John 2, but at the same time carry on in a what we would say is a non-doctrinal teaching of the ministry of the person of the Holy Spirit that is active and alive today. But you can hold these truths with a charismatic over a cup of coffee. You can still hold them tightly, but then yet hold them loosely in terms of being bulldogmatic, such that, no, no, you can't really be saved since you don't even understand God the Holy Spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, good. Um, I do want to take you to this, this last uh, important point, which is the first point in your notes. Obviously, we've got, we've got a second equip coming up next week where we will land the jet on the balance of the points. But I really wanted to take the time to hear from all of you and understand the importance of our unity and see its basis manifested in God himself and see the importance of unity expressed in the very essence of who God is, and then see how valuable we are caught up in that, and then also the missional side of John 13, 34 and 13, 35, and what our church presents as in terms of our love that's rooted in doctrine. This has to find expression. But believers should share a common understanding and acceptance of essential Christian doctrines. If you go to Acts chapter 2, I know we've been there, but I just want to point out one important aspect of Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 42. It's really in, in verse 42. Um, so this is just communicating what's going on in the early church. Again, this is a historical book, uh, communicating what actually happened. doesn't mean that all of this has to be exactly patterned as what we see here, unless we match it up with other um, teaching and the Word of God. But what's communicated in verse 40, and with many other words, speaking of Peter, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So what is the vehicle by which he was doing this? He was communicating words. He was communicating truths. He was talking to people. And that's what we're doing here on a Sunday morning when we gather up. We're communicating truth. We're talking to one another. Um, verse 41, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added 3,000 souls. Now one of the great things about this particular baptism is, would, would one be on pretty stable ground saying that every one of these 3,000 were really, really saved? Whereas today, if we were to baptize a couple hundred or 3,000, we might not know whether or not their profession was in fact true. But I think we can land the jet on these initial 3,000. They were truly saved. They had the Holy Spirit indwelling them in this historical account. And what did they do? Well, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Just stop there. What is number one in the list here? Apostolic communication of truth. On what do we stand and build our unity in our community? 
according to Ephesians chapter 2? Is it our cultural bias that we might all just get along? Is it um, this seeking after um, solving global warming? It, is, it, is it coexistence? Thank you, Luther. What, what is it that we're teaching? We're teaching words of truth. We're teaching apostolic truth. The foundation of this church, this structure, this building is apostolic and prophet truth. It's revealed truth. It's God's self-revelation. Don't you love explaining it that way? It's God saying, this is me, and this is who I am. And this is my expression of love for you. And is that, is that enough for us? Can we, can we have unity on that? God's self-revelation is enough truth for us. And we can stand on that with conviction and act upon it and build our lives on it and have unity in it. Oh, we can. We can do that in spades. But we got to have each other. We can't go run off and live on a pole in the middle of the Egyptian desert or put on a Snuggie and retreat to a, some, you know, I won't call it a resort <laughs> if you've ever seen them. But uh, anyway, very important. 2 Timothy 3.16, what is that passage? All scripture, and what Paul is referring to there, all graphe, all the Old Testament writings, all the writings are theopanoustos. That's just the fancy Greek word for God-inspired, God-breathed, theo, God, panousta, Holy Spirit, think spirit, think pneumatics of the air. So all the writings are breathed out by God, and they're profitable for us for teaching they're profitable for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness so that we can all be equipped. Don't you see what's going on with God's self-revelation here? It is so wonderful to have truth and to center our fellowship, our sharing of life on his self-revelation and his great love for us and his commands for how we do life. And it ought to break our hearts when we think of our friends and our family who are caught up in some weird koinonia, some other pursuit of finding themselves in all these other aberrant things that we've been talking about this morning. So we lovingly go to them and we preach words of truth and we don't give ground on any of it. Oh, Ezra, chapter 7, final verse. Let's go here, really cool. So just in case you think that there's nothing in the Old Testament that speaks to what we're talking about here. So Ezra, he comes to Jerusalem, um, part of the rebuilding process, and he's got uh, the whole nation there now taken out of captivity. And um, Ezra 7, 8... And he comes into Jerusalem, and what is the very first thing he does? Um, it's interesting to see this in Ezra chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh year of the king. Again, I'm in Ezra chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. Verse 9, for on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon and on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good, the good hand of his God was upon him. And then verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statues, statutes and ordinances in Israel. The interesting thing about that Hebrew word is it's the Hebrew word Talmud. Does anybody know what the Talmud is in the Hebrew faith? The Talmud. I see some yeses, maybe. Yeah, so it's kind of the, rabbinic, the rabbinical takeoff on the Graphi, the Old Testament, the, the law and the prophets, and the initial Mosaic revelation, the Talmud. So what Ezra's doing, his bias, immediately upon return to Jerusalem, was to teach, to gather the whole nation up, and to communicate his statutes and ordinances. And what a great thing for us to unify around. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and, and call it an equip class. Let's go ahead and pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray for unity in this area of understanding how, God, you've purposed us to live for you. And, God, what a great benefit it is that you've blessed us with your self-revelation. Oh, God, that we might hold fast to it and, and use it, Lord, and appropriate it in a way, God, that would bring you glory and honor in all that we do and say. We pray, too, for our sermon coming up here for our teaching that you would uh, guide Pastor Rich in his words and that they would find their residence within our heart and stir us up, Lord, and cause us to seek more and more glory for you. We pray all these things through your Son. Amen.